Would you turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 4, and how we've been blessed already in the music. While you're turning, we have a friend here. I have a friend. I did not know I had a friend named Roger Adams and his precious wife, and they're here from Pennsylvania. Now listen, this is his 80th birthday, and for his 80th birthday, he wanted to come all the way down and be a part of our service. He's been in precept tapes for years, and so we kind of know each other through a TV screen. But we are glad to have Let's give them a big old wooden park row. Wait, raise your hand so they can see who y'all are. (laughs) Thank you so much, Roger. You've made my day. Next week, uh, while I'm in Romania, I'll be doing three conferences this year, two in Serduk, as we normally do, but then we're moving on and doing one in Bucharest this year, first time. But uh, you pray for me as I preach 24 times while I'm over there. But next week, we have a wonderful preacher. In fact, I just highly recommend him, and that's our son, Stephen Barber. And he loves this church. He grew up in this church, and so I pray you'll come and just wrap your arms around him. It's such an encouragement when he gets to do that. The following week, we'll have a a Gideon speaker, but I want to tell you, he'll blow your socks off. He's also from Pennsylvania, and uh, dynamic testimony. Woo! Got to hear him in one of the regional uh, Gideon times, and it's just a great time. So it's going to be really great. You won't miss a step. But pray for me while we're gone. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through 32. We're still in this little journey of the Christ life. This is part 5. We even went through Palm Sunday and through Resurrection Sunday in this series. And today the title is, Are You Wearing the Right Garment? Are You Wearing the Right Garment? I heard the most profound statement this week. I had the privilege of being with one of our own, Brian Johnson, that works in the public schools and teaches Bible, and it was for the Bible for Schools luncheon. And at the very end of that program, the fellow said this. He says, I don't need to be taught most of the time. He said, what I really need is to be reminded. Well, that's a profound statement. So often we think we want new truth. We need to be reminded of the truth that we already know. If you want to know why I've been doing this topical series in between Hebrews and then Galatians, it's nothing really new, but a whole lot of reminding of what we're supposed to already know. When Christ is living in us and through us, there is a behavioral change that people immediately see. This behavioral change is so unique that it points only to Christ. And this is unlike any kind of worldly, fleshly, religious, whatever, self-help efforts. You see, anyone can change their behavior. But only Christ can produce from within the character and the behavior that points only back to him. For instance, Christ living in us and through us unifies us. It's incredible. When you're walking in the Spirit, you're automatically one with your brother who's walking in the Spirit. It's incredible. No matter what the contrasting personality might be, no matter what the culture is that frames somebody's background, we're one if we're in Christ. For instance, we're going to be in Ephesians today. One of the main themes of the book of Ephesians is is unity, the unity of all believers that, that they share in the Holy Spirit. We're never told to produce this unity. We're told to preserve it in the bonds of peace. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Being 
diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, and one of the things he's trying to get across to them is to help the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers within the church to understand that they were, since they were saved, that they're now one in Christ. Jewish believers, Gentile believers are now one in Christ, despite their cultural differences. Their being in Christ erased those cultural differences and their animosity towards one another. That's what Christ does for us and in us. Listen to what he says to them in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Now the barrier of the dividing wall alludes to the separation of the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. Between that court and the court of the Israelites was a sign and it read this, no Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. I mean it was death if that Gentile went beyond. This physical barrier illustrated the barrier of hostility and hate that had for generations separated the two groups. But in Christ, that barrier has been torn down. In fact, the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers became brand new. All of us become brand new. One person in Christ Jesus. One group coming from the rebellious end in, in Ephesians, that's the Gentiles, and the other coming from the religious end. But in Christ, they are now united as one. Only God could do that. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.32. Give no offense either to Jews. Now watch the groups here. To Jews or to Greeks, which are the ethnic groups, the Gentiles, or to the church of God. Wow. The church of God is a brand new family, and it's one in Christ Jesus. Well, the hinge of the book of Ephesians is found in chapter 3 in the prayer that Paul prays for the church, many times people have said, Wayne, how can I pray for you? And I say, pray this prayer. That's all I ever ask. Pray this prayer for me. In his prayer, we see how our behavior is changed from the inside out. How this really takes place once Christ comes and lives in us. He says in verse 14 of Ephesians 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Now watch this to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now the power, the divine enablement that, that God puts within us in himself, he puts his, his Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. Everything that he demands from us, he lives within us to enable. It comes from God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ living within us. Now this divine enablement, enablement is not out of his power, but it's according to his power. You say, well, what's the difference? Oh, what's the difference? The word according is the word kata. Kata is the word that determines the measure of something. You say, Wayne, I still don't get it. Well, you will in a minute. But if I was a millionaire and I wanted to give you some money, would you want that money out of my wealth 
or according to my wealth? Which would you rather have? That's a pretty easy answer, isn't it? If I gave you out of my wealth, I'd give you a dollar. If I give you according to my wealth, that's going to up the ante real quick if I was a millionaire. He says in verse 17 of Ephesians 3, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Oh, I love that. The word dwell means to be down home. Kata Ikea. Down kata Ikea, which means how. Now, have you ever been somewhere that you didn't feel down home? You ever been like that? You ever been to somebody's house that is so formal you're afraid to sneeze if you'll break something? You ever been there? You ever been to where you go over and they give you these little teacups that you can't even put your finger in? I mean, you try to drink from it and you're afraid to move. You're afraid to move. You don't feel down home. Let me tell you what down home feels like. Years ago, I was doing a meeting for a friend of mine down in Mississippi, a little small town. In fact, Mike Harlan, who's now the head of the music for the whole Southern Baptist Convention, been a friend of mine for years, would always do the meeting with me. He was lived in Jackson at that time, Mississippi. I'd fly into Jackson. He'd put me in his little truck that was only big enough for one half of a person, and he would take me down there. We'd put our luggage in the back. Rain or no rain, that's the only place we had to put it. And I remember we missed the turnoff every single time to show you how far away this place was. But when we got down there, he would put us in a home of some folks that I had known earlier in our ministry in Jackson, Mississippi. And they had a big house. I'm talking about five bedrooms. Now, who ever heard of having a house with five bedrooms and only two people living? But they had this big old house on hundreds of acres, deer, trophy deer, turkey. Awesome. And when we would get there, we would just feel at home. You're talking about down home. We pulled up the first time we ever went, and the basketball goal had two sticks leaning up against it. We saw that right off. We said, wonder what those sticks are for. We got out of the car, and two of the biggest dogs I've ever seen in my life come after us. He grabbed one stick, I grabbed the other stick. We beat the dogs off of us, and we and found out what the sticks were for. Got inside, had a sign. that They were never home. They were in their early 80s, man. They didn't retire. They refired, man. They're still going, discipling somebody or ministering to somebody. So they had a little note there. It says, pick any bedroom you want. That was fun. Just pick out, where, where do you want to stay? I don't know. We'd, some nights we'd just play around and pick different rooms. You know. We'd go into the kitchen. Oh, they knew I'd like two kinds of cakes. I love pound cake and coconut cake. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of cake that gags you. Some people just don't know how to make those two things. It's so dry, it just gags you. I'm talking about, it's just moist, just right, just right. Put it on your forehead, tongue, slap your brains out. And then have a big old pitcher of iced tea. Man, it was just home. We went into the den. They had one TV there, but they had three remotes. I don't know what that was all for. So they had a little list writing out how do you turn on the satellite. And this is years ago. Now you could do it with one, but then you had to do it with three. I had to turn all that. It was awesome. Let me tell you how at home we felt. Now, they were in the early 80s. But one night, we're, I sat on their bed in their room while the, they got dressed to go to church. Now, that's being at home in somebody's house. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. That Christ may dwell in your heart. Be down home in your heart. When is it that Christ is at home in our hearts? And it tells you. When we walk by faith, totally trusting him in the areas of our life. He didn't come into our hearts to rent a room. He bought the house and he wants to take over. He wants the key to every single room of our hearts. And we're willing to surrender to him there's a behavior that develops on the outside. Nobody can miss. It has to be God. It cannot be you and I. And then he goes on in verse 17 and says, And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, 
and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. And look where he puts these two verses. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, all generations forever and ever. Amen. Just imagine being strengthened by the Holy Spirit that lives within us. It's like drinking out of a fire hydrant. It's incredible the power God puts within us in the person of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Now, this is how the Christian life is lived. This is how behavior changes when you allow him to be free to work in and through your life. Once this is taking place from the inside out, everything changes. In chapter 4, we get a look at this behavior that Christ produces in the church, this unifying, brand-new behavior. Listen, it's like a garment. We put on and take off clothes every day. It's like a garment that you put on. In fact, he's going to tell us to put it on. We wear it so that people, it's the garment that people can see. It's what's evident. Uh, in verse 17 through 21, he tells them not to live as the lost world lives. That behavior has changed. It needs to change. What we used to be now has changed because we've become a brand new person. He says in verse 17 of Ephesians 4, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles or the lost also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. So he tells them, he's going to tell them now to put on the new man, and he's talking about the behavior. Let the behavioral change take place. Ephesians 4.22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Listen, only, others only see Jesus in us. They only see the garment of, of his presence in our life when we walk by faith. He's not contradicting what Colossians says. Colossians 3 says, you've already put off the old man. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, stop living as if you haven't. The words put on is in the middle voice. Middle voice basically carries three ideas. First of all, there's an invitation. Isn't that awesome? Even in a command. God's inviting me to participate in all that he's given to me in Christ. There's a choice that I have to make. I have to make it. Nobody can make it for me to bow before him. And then once I've made the choice, uh-oh, I'm not able to do what I just chose to do. Only he can enable what I've just chosen to do. There's your Christ life right there. Now, what does that look like when we choose to wear this new garment? What does it look like? Now, we're going to look at it by what it doesn't look like. Most of the time we learn more from what it doesn't look like than we do, do reciting what it does look like. And I've got a friend. You know, I love Dave and Phyllis Reed. And Phyllis is going to come. Where are you, Phyllis, in this service? I know you're here. There you are. <laughs> you scared me there for a minute. That's the way it always is with Phyllis. I hear her talking, but I never can see her. <laughs> I 
I say, Phyllis, I hear you. Where are you? Oh, there you are. And then I check to see if there's any bugs right here. All right, now, have you ever worn the wrong garment? Now, let me ask you this question. Are you wearing the wrong garment this morning? Only your, your people around you know because they, all, they already know. Now, watch what it looks like when we put the wrong garment on. <laughs> now, that's what we look like before others and before God when we don't let the Spirit of God control our lives. We just look out of place. We don't have the right garment on. You know what I wish we would do? I wish we would look at each other. When you hear somebody just being all, you know how the flesh can be, just look at them and say, give me, give me time out. What garment are you wearing? Come over here. Let's let make sure everybody sees you. <laughs> yes, yes. That's what it looks like. Now, listen, give her a big hand because she's been a big sport to do this. <laughs> yeah. Let me help you. I was going to trade garments with her, but I don't want to tear up her garments. <laughs> Thank you, Phyllis. Thank you so very much. All right, let's look at it, what it doesn't look like. Okay, remember, when you're not living in the Spirit, your behavior tells everybody where you are. And if you've got the wrong garment on, it's going to look a certain way, okay? Several things we're going to get into as we look at verses 25 down through verse 32. First of all is this. If you're wearing, a, if you're wearing the right garment, we will not be deceptive. We will not be deceptive. It says in verse 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Falsehood is the word for deception or deceit. In verse 22, it already appears that deceit not only characterizes, it's a lure. It's a lure of our flesh. It not only characterized the way the Ephesian believers once thought and lived, but it also had a continuous pull on them to go back to that way of living. Look at verse 22 again. We read it a moment ago. He says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And that being corrupted is present tense. It's not getting any better. It constantly pulls on us. When we walk in the Spirit, the old deceitful behavior is replaced by a truthful, honest life. That's Christ in us. What a difference from the other way. Again, therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Disunity in the body of Christ comes when members are deceitful with one another. Not in just what we say, but in the way we live in front of each other. Peter mentions a very similar thing in his first epistle. He refers to the garment of flesh, which, by the way, is the, is the epitome of deceit, and he calls it malice. By the way, these are just synonyms for the flesh or self. And, he's, and he, he, he puts what goes along with this malice, what goes along with this garment of flesh. 1 Peter 2.1. Therefore, putting aside all malice. Now, what goes along with that? And all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, all slander. Now, notice the first thing that he mentions after the word malice is the word deceit, dolos. It's the word in Greek to, Greece today that means fish bait. Boy, does that ever draw a picture? Now, you don't take the words that how it evolved in today. I know that. But it's interesting the picture it draws for us for what deceit really is. Fish bait. If we were living in Greece today, we'd go down to the store and buy some fish bait. 
Dolos. Now, what is it about fish bait that can be deceiving? Well, here's that teenage fish swimming down the river. And there's nothing, not another fish around. And all of a sudden, he sees a T-bone worm hanging there. And he can't see the monofilament line that's coming to it. It's all trans transparent. He can't really see it. And he looks around, nobody around. He's thinking, this is my day. And he swims up, grabs that T-bone worm, and takes off down the river. Well, he doesn't know that an unseen pair of hands in a world he's never been in is controlling his destiny. And letting that line go, letting that line go, wow, this is good. I got away. Ooh, this is awesome. And all of a sudden, he discovers something about what looks so good that causes him a lot of pain. You know what it is? Inside that worm is a uh-oh. And when that hook is set, buddy, the pain begins to start. So what is deceit? Deceit is always, it looks good on the outside. This is a person who, who knows how to be friendly with everybody, knows how to smile at the right time, knows the words to say at the right time, but underneath it, there is a hook. He wants something from you. That's what deceit is. But you see, when the Spirit of God is changing our behavior, you can't live that way because that's the way we used to live. It was all about ourselves. It was never about Christ and about others. Well, we will not be deceptive. Secondly, we will not be bitter. And the author of Hebrews, uh, as we just studied, remember, warned that that was the key thing you watch out for. Watch out for the root of bitterness springing up, he says, defiles many. When a deceitful person doesn't get his way or is offended by someone, he becomes bitter. And all of his anger is directed at the person who caused his pain. Everything's about himself. There's no understanding of what's out here. But when the Holy Spirit is controlling our lives, he diverts that anger toward the problem, not the person. Look what he says in verse 26. Be angry. Now, that's the first part of it. We could all say, hey, that's good. Be angry. No. And yet, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, how in the world can we be angry and not sin? The key is, what is the object of your anger? Let me explain it this way. If you're angry with a person, then you are filled with the wrong kind of anger. It's like when you have that rifle up and there's a scope on it and there's a crosshair in it and you've got that crosshair on that individual and you live your life bitter toward that individual, that's the wrong kind of anger. That's fleshly anger. This is where bitterness sets in. He says concerning that kind of anger, and listen to what he says about it. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I heard a friend of mine say one time, he says, my wife and I always go to bed and, and we don't let the sun go down on our anger, ever. I mean, we, we deal with everything. We go to bed and we're not angry with one another, ever. And he said, of course, we've been awake for months at a time. <laughs> The contrast is with who you're, you're angry at. If you're angry at the problem, not the person, then your anger is a righteous anger. Let me explain it this way. If you have a loved one and he has cancer and acts unkindly towards you, you're not going to hate the loved one. You're going to hate the cancer. The Spirit of God that lives within us loves the sinner, but it hates the sin. And when you cannot separate the two, look out because the flesh will lead you into that trap of bitterness. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we'll not be deceptive with one another. There's no hook in what we're doing. There's no personal gain out of what we're doing. And we'll not be bitter towards one another. But then thirdly, we'll not be divisive toward one another. 
Ephesians 4.27, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now, disunity is the work of the devil, whereas unity is the work of the Holy Spirit. The word devil he used here, it's interesting too. It's in chapter 4, and chapter 4's whole theme is unity. But the word used for devil is the word diabolos. Now, diabolos, there's plenty of words describing that hateful person, but it comes from dia, which means between, and volos, which means to cast cast in between, and to divide. Now, this word opportunity is in some translations translated place, and it can be because that's what it also means. But this has led some believers to think that a devil, the devil or a demon, can be inside of a Christian. That's ridiculous. You see, all you have to do is find other context that doesn't mean that, and it disproves that. You have to let the context tell you. The word is used in Hebrews 8-7 as an occasion. It's used as opportunity in Acts 25 and verse 16. When we're not being filled with the Holy Spirit, we are doing, now think about this for a second, we're doing the devil's work of dividing the body of Christ. The devil can't be everywhere at one time. I remember being in South Africa and people would say, the devil got on me today. And I come home and somebody says on the same day, the devil got on me the other day. It happened to be the same day. I mean, wait a minute, he's not omnipresent. In fact, in the book of Job, God asked him, where have you been? Walking to and fro on the earth. Oh, is that right? Now, where have you been? Ask him twice. Because he can't be everywhere. If you put him on a scale with God and tried to measure their power, the devil doesn't even show up. He's a creation that rebels. God is God, holy God. Imagine, however, when we choose to walk after the flesh, when we just say, God, I'm not listening to you right now. You don't, don't you call me, I'll call you. What happens is we are doing the bidding of the devil in dividing the flock of God. When we're walking in the Spirit, we will not be deceptive with one another. We will not be bitter at one another. We will not be divisive to one another. But not only that, we will not be takers, but givers to one another. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. It appears to me that the emphasis of that verse is at the very end of it, focusing on sharing with one another. When a person's not walking in the Spirit, and we've all been there, he becomes a very self-centered person. He takes from others. But when he's walking in the Spirit, instead of stealing from others, he would rather give. Spirit-filled believers are givers. What no matter whether we're talking about money, time, love, whatever it is, not takers in the body of Christ. And I want to tell you something. I don't get this chance to say this many times, but well, I have to have the chance, but I haven't said it. But I want you to know that coming back to Woodland Park for Dinah and I has just been such an overwhelming blessing. I didn't really realize what we had. You know, we were so busy back in those days. But when I came back, when we came back, I see it in the body. And I saw it this past week at, at uh, the funeral for the Monroe uh, kids. I mean, uh, Renee and then the, the two little ones. I saw it. I saw how you responded, overwhelmed them. Just, I mean... I just stood back and watched. I've seen it over and over and over again. So I want to thank God for what I see in this body. But I want you to know, when the Spirit of God is in, our, in, our, in, in control of our lives, Ephesians 5, 18, he's going to tell them, be filled with the Spirit. That's present tense. Be filled, constantly filled, which means controlled by the Holy Spirit that lives within you. But when we're allowing Christ to overwhelm us, we're allowing him to live in us, we will not live deceitfully with one another. We will not be bitter at one another. We'll not be divisive to one another. 
We'll not, we'll be, not be takers, but givers to one another. And the fifth thing is we will not be verbally abusive. We will not be verbally abusive. Verse 29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. There are two words that are key in that verse. It's the word unwholesome and the word edification. The word unwholesome is a word you don't want to be around. It's the word that means rotten, putrid, smelly. When I think of an illustration, I think of my son Stephen, who will be 41 this year, when he used to put his tennis shoes in the garage. The car would back out by itself. There is not a human, it is not a word in any language to describe. That is this word right here, the word for, for unwholesome. But the word for edification is a beautiful word. It's the word that means to build up, like to build a house, but not, not just build a house. A house shelters and protects others. And so the words that the Holy Spirit has us say builds up its protection in it. It doesn't write something on Facebook. It doesn't put something over here. It doesn't say this behind somebody's back. No, no, no. When the Spirit of God is in control of us, our speech will not be abusive to the body of Christ in any way. You know that old phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me? That has to be a lie from the pit of hell. I'd rather be beaten anytime than the words that are spoken with that kind of heart. Listen, when we're filled by the Holy Spirit, we aren't deceitful. We are not bitter. We're not divisive. We are givers, not takers. We're not verbally abusive to the body of Christ. And he, listen, this works outside the walls, but he's talking about the church. He's talking about the body of Christ. And finally, to sum it all up, if you summed it all up, if you're walking in the Spirit, if you're walking according to the Spirit, we will not grieve the Holy Spirit. And if you're walking in it, you're certainly not grieving. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And the word grieve is a love word. It occurs when we choose our own selfish way above God's way. It's a, it's a tender word. It means to grieve or to affect with sorrow. Now, the only way to understand this is to think about the person you love. Think about the people in your life and how you grieve them at times by your attitude or, as we've already seen, by what you say, by your deception, whatever it is that we grieve. I think of Diana, how many times I've grieved her. She's got a very sensitive spirit. I love her for it. How many times I've grieved her with just a look, just a look, just an attitude. Now, listen, that's very personal, and that's very right here. But I want to tell you something. When I choose to live selfishly, deceitfully, with bitterness in my heart to my brothers, divisive, takers, tearing down others by what I say, I haven't just grieved them. I have grieved the very Holy Spirit of God. Now, put it in perspective. Are we wearing the right garment this morning? <laughs> we had some parents years ago when I preached on Ephesians, and they said, Wayne, would you get off this garment thing? I said, why? I said, well, we were coming to church, and we were just having a holy disagreement. You know, <laughs> That's what we call it, isn't it? And the kids in the back seat had been listening to the messages, and they leaned up and said, Mama, Daddy, what garment are you wearing? 
Do you realize what we've done? We've blended the garments to the point we don't recognize the difference anymore. And when somebody who's a brother or a sister is any of these types of things that, we're, that God puts in his word, we need to say, time out, time out. What garment are you wearing? What is that garment? Help me understand your attitude. Help me understand what you just wrote or what you just said. Well, in conclusion, in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, he gives you the contrast between the two. I mean, if you can't see it, you, your eyes are shut. Listen, look at this. Verse 31. Here's the, here's the flesh right here. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, which by the way is loud speaking, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Remember that word malice that Peter used? Then look at verse 32. Be kind to one another. Ooh, I love that. Tenderhearted. Forgiving each other. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Look at the difference, contrast. Well, when we walk filled with the Spirit, when we're letting Jesus be Jesus in our life, it's going to be seen in our behavior. Being filled with the Spirit, I used to not understand this, and I wished I had, but now that I'm beginning to understand it. But a long time ago, I thought that being filled with the Spirit is getting that glass full of water. Matter of fact, I've heard preachers say, come on back tonight, get that refilling, get that refilling. I thought that's what it was, drink all the water and run back to a fire hydrant somewhere and get some more. I mean, it's just a, wherever you can get the water. But then I learned, being filled with the Spirit is to knock the bottom out of the glass, which in our case, in a spiritual sense, is flesh, self. Wayne's got to die to Wayne. All of us have to die to one another by saying yes to Christ. Knock the bottom out. Put it in the divine spiritual river and let the river of the Holy Spirit flow through it. That's what being filled with the Spirit is. The continual surrender, getting out of God's way, nothing there that would stop the flow. And he's, the Holy Spirit lives within us to reveal what it is that's stopping the flow. And it'll always point back to our own flesh. So, don't ever forget Phyllis. <laughs> and her wearing my coat today. Don't ever forget that. Because that's how out of place it is when a believer does not live filled with the Spirit of God. How do I know? I have been there way too many times. Thank God to get right back into the flow, run to the cross. Forgiveness is already there. Cleansing is already there. But we go confess. That's not for God's benefit. It's for ours. And as we get there, we appropriate the forgiveness. We appropriate the cleansing. Oh, listen, there's nothing like living clean before God and before man. And that's the Christian life. Can't fake it. Can't manufacture it. God has to produce it. Would you stand with me? Heads bowed, eyes closed. <laughs>